Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello. Hey, girlfriend. What's up? How are you doing? Hey, girl boss, girl boss, girlfriend. Girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about the, the word girl boss, actually. Because I'm tempted to use it in a future book, but I'm not sure if it's if it's like Barbary appropriate where you're using the word in a in a sense of talking about patriarchal structures that exploit while simultaneously undercutting them. Like mm-hmm. just the world girl boss could be enough in the title for me to communicate that I am that I hate the late capitalist patriarchal system, but that we must dwell within it. As mm-hmm. we must girl boss, we must girl boss. <laughs> yep. So, and how do we girl boss in an ethical uh, way without destroying ourselves and and uh, and proliferating these systems? How do you create new systems while simultaneously girl bossing? Yeah. So this is this is why I'm thinking about girl bossing and why I called you girlfriend and why <laughs> I like. Uh, I think my favorite is um, what head bitch in charge HBIC. That's a good one, too. Oh, I didn't know that. But Jordan, that was we popular have to, when I was in college. We have to talk about what just happened at a conference, which oh, yes. was so much fun, where somebody's like, um, well, you tell the story because it was it was really good about about your part in this podcast. I was it was at dinner after the first day of the reception. We went to dinner yeah. and we were uh, sitting with I won't name the scholar. But we were talking and she was mentioning your podcast. And I said, yeah, our podcast. And she was like, wait, what? And because she was talking about how she was listening to our Cleopatra reception episodes and how mm-hmm. she really liked them. And she was incorporating mm-hmm. them into her class because she was teaching a class on Cleopatra and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, we had a really fun time. Like, Heba was great. Catherine was great. And she was like, wait, we had a good time? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm the co-host. I'm the Jordan. And... Which and then she was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and I've known her for years, and so I just thought it was really funny that because Jordan's not a very common name, and no, and no. I was like, "You didn't recognize my annoying voice or something," <laughs> but, or 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 my strident opinions or yes. or whatever. But um, no, I thought I just thought that was really awesome. It was funny, yeah. But, I thought it was great. But I think now. She'll listen to us even more because then she was like, oh, well, now I know both of you. So, but it's good. Yeah. 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 yeah the podcast is out there. It's always nice to hear other people listening to it and using it, especially in the classroom is nice. These are our goals. And there was a, po- a point at the end of this two-day conference that we were a part of for, for something called Global Antiquity at UCLA, which is a really wonderful new, uh, co- a new um, center that pulls together all faculty who work on antiquity globally, whether yeah. it's in Japan or China or the Pacific Islands or Norway or or Egypt, and it pulls them together within UCLA and within the UC system. And so yeah. we have this two-day conference with people from UC Riverside, Davis, Irvine, Santa Barbara, San Diego, Berkeley, um, Santa Cruz, and maybe I'm missing some, but it yeah. was it was really cool. But um at the end of it, there was a question by a young okay. academic who said, but, you know, we're supposed to write these academic books. How can we communicate these things with the 
with the medium not allowing us to communicate in this way, communicate things like diversity, equity, inclusion, communicate things like thoughts and feelings about the past in a more emotional way, Mm -hmm. communicate things that, that don't fit in an academic rubric. And, and you look like we mean, we locked eyes and, and, and you were like, steal the microphone. I'm like, well, I can't, (laughs) but I did say, you know, there's podcasts, Mm -hmm. there's Substack, there's popular books. There are things that you can do. So um, look yeah. to those other options and I think look to the blog yeah and I think to to their point when they were like yeah but they're not looked at as highly right mm-hmm. as like they don't count you're no, putting you, your energy you into list something. them differently yeah. or something and I'm like the only yeah. way to change that is for more and more people to do it and right. to incorporate them into their course content right and all these things and who's deciding they don't count like if we all agree that they should and we start incorporating them more and doing them more, it will eventually change the system. And, yeah. you know, like tenure committees and things like what counts towards tenure and what counts as academic publishing and all these things, we can change those. Um, we just all have to agree that these things are rigorous and you put as much mm-hmm. labor into them so they should count as much. And yeah. just different. So that there's value to writing your own periodical and Substack and releasing that mm-hmm. to the public and having a large following. There's value to that. Yeah. Well, and the and, whole point um, of, I mean, one of the panels in, in Global Antiquity, of which you were a part, was talking about pedagogy. Like, how do we get students interested in this stuff? How do we get, mm-hmm. how do we prove our relevance of studying the ancient world and um, all these things? And I think the point is to get people to read, like, what's our interplay? And I was talking with Lexi Henning about this too. I was like, all these topics that you guys were throwing around are like podcast episodes it's exactly how i think of how like oh what should we talk about next what's going mm-hmm. on in the world like x whatever and then i'm like mm-hmm. okay and then what was happening in the ancient world what connections can we make what can we learn how can yeah. we change how we view things we're repeating the same mistakes again and again and right that's what people want to hear about that's what they want to read about um and so thinking about it yeah if we're trying to please the student body and get them interested and see the relevance in these things. I think we have to make it in conversation with what's going on contemporaneously around us. Yeah. And then the the relevance is obvious. Yeah. So. And I think the podcast is is such an important medium because we're all girl boss in it. <laughs> and and while you're driving or on the bus or as you multitask and girl boss, it's it's really the preferred medium for me these days. I don't no, have 100%. time to watch. I don't have time to watch anything. No, as, as, I I, my, as I'm getting, doing yeah. my hair, doing my makeup, yeah. I have a podcast on. As I'm showering, yeah. I have a podcast on. As I'm yeah. cleaning the house, doing dishes, I have a podcast on. Me, I we're go on a so walk. Similar. <laughs> I have yeah. a podcast on. I don't yeah, like silence. Too. So, because then my brain yeah, starts that. doing things. And it's a hell I, of a lot better than TV, you know? Yeah. It's, and it's a hell of a lot better than most of the shit on Netflix. And so I just, I'm, I want to learn quite, something. I want to be like, yeah. intellectually stimulated in a way. Um, but I could also be, vacuuming or going on a walk or driving to campus or something and yeah you can have an interesting discussion with people but there are tons of historians that that produce well not maybe not tons but and but a lot of historians that produce good content either written in a blog form like mm-hmm. on a, a platform like yeah. Substack or or on a podcast medium but um I will point out that we are what we're ranked as one of the top history podcasts yeah. and we're very proud of that we get over 10,000 downloads a month. We're, we're doing pretty damn well, and well I will say, for our little girl bossy outfit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're, I think, one of the only ones that don't have like walls up 
of con for content, right? Like we have oh. paid supporters and people support us and all this stuff. Yeah. But and thank the, you. Thank you. Yes. Supporters. And thank you supporters. But a lot of the other ones, you know, they have uh, either you have to pay to get things early or, you know, eventually or there's like even episodes that you can't listen to at all because you have to be a paid um, supporter. And that, you know, is contra our our mission. Um, mm -hmm. We have, you know, supporters to support our mission and all this kind of stuff, but nothing is you know, behind a paywall. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think that's interesting. And I know it's funny okay. because people are like, you're always teaching, you always over teach. I'm like, yeah. And I do a podcast and I do Substack, which is adult education or education beyond the university. And, and you've been doing that now through graduate education, which is mm -hmm. pretty damn extraordinary when you think about it. Yep. Um, it's in a way it's been a part of your, uh, your graduate educational experience. So that's, well, that's yeah, pretty and I, cool. I very much, appreciate it. And I think I've grown a lot just, you know, being having to like research and pull together an episode, public speaking skills, like all these things, meeting, you know, it's a good excuse to meet scholars in the field and, mm -hmm. um, you know, talk to them and build build rapport and relationships. And so I I think it's helped me a lot as well. Um, I think grow as a as a scholar and public facing academic. But enough so. about our awesome podcast in the in the face of public history dissemination. Let's oh, I use the word dissemination. Oh, no, that's not girl bossy. But but what's on tap for today, Jordan? So today we're going to be doing the December supporter um, questions. So we have Yay, some questions supporters. Thank you. supporters. That, uh, they sent in and they're good questions this month. So I'm really excited. Um, yeah, a good awesome. swath. Um, so we can jump right in. And okay. as usual, I know not the questions and I have my iPad up there ready to pull up yep. texts, et cetera, as needed. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Abigail asks, keeping with the spirit of the season, so we're in the in the holidays, I have a question about the Egyptian calendar. And, and in uh, brackets, they went, uh-oh. Um, I know that the seasons were generally based around the flood cycle, inundation, you know, flood, inundation, um, harvest, et cetera. But were there any winter solstice festivals or other holidays to celebrate the return of the sun? So dealing with, you know, the days getting, the nights getting longer, the days getting shorter. And then that moment of winter solstice where we have um, now, you know, the opposite returning. So, so I, I boldly say that I don't, you know, research these questions in advance. And this is a question that I would have need to have researched <laughs> to be able to answer. Um, but we can we can do the basics of inundation. But the winter solstice at, at Karnak, right? Yeah. Well, so start with the three months, and yeah. then talk about um, the solstices as they. You're you're right as they hit certain temple spaces, um, particularly at Thebes, maybe off mm -hmm. symbol as well. I'm not sure, but um, we we've got our three seasons, mm -hmm. right? Um, with four months each. Mm -hmm. This is correct. Yes. Yes. And so we have inundation, seasons, which is Ahet. Ahet. And this is when the Nile floods its banks. And it's generally happening around June. Um, am I right? June, July? Yeah, I think a little um, bit later in the summer, like end is of it summer. Later? I think it's like end of summer to January. Oh, you're right. It's like August to. Yeah. Um, and it lasts a long time. So it oh. means that that land is inundated and everyone's just kind of hanging out and you're drinking beer. Yeah. And for for yeah. a long time. Not yeah. Working. And then yeah. so so yeah, we have inundation and then we have parrot, which is mm -hmm. like winter. 
which really um, means like coming out yeah. emergence. It's like the the first shoots are, are I coming guess out. The land is emerging too from the yeah yeah, which is in you know thinking about Egyptian concepts of life, the emergence of life, the primordial mound out of the waters of noon, and mm-hmm. so that's parrot happening every year. We have that. The Egyptians are obsessed with the the first occasion and that mm-hmm. first occasion being the first mound or phallic element that's peeking out of the waters. And this is associated with the body of Osiris. And you have things like Osirions, which mm-hmm. are burial spaces for Osiris that have a coffin in the center and, and they're below the water table. So the coffin is surrounded by waters and then his body is there emerging out of it a little bit higher. But there's so much mythology you could do to go with that. And the months for that are like. Must it be like, like January to May? Okay. Yeah. And then and then the last, which is like harvest or summer, is Shemu. And that's when when you have um, Shemu is kind of like a thinness, a lack, uh, like a, a wanting. Mm-hmm. And um, so it it's um it's not a wanting of of food and drink because you've just harvested you've got everything you need but the the water is very very low and it's it's gone away so you're you're it's a really weird sort of landscape the opposite of what you get in a rain fed agriculture either in the mesopotamia or in europe mm-hmm. where you have you you have um a lack of water at the same time you have an abundance of food and and everything's kind of flipped on its head. And when you're resting and everything's awesome and you're kind of laid back, you have a, you got to really be careful about rationing your food, one would imagine, because you're working with last year's supplies. So mm-hmm. this, this season for an agriculturalist, this, this system, um, climate, climate system really demands some planning ahead of time and storage and making sure that you have enough to get through the whole year. Well, um, and speaking yeah. to the Egyptian calendar or seasons being so, I mean, revolving around the flood, either mm-hmm. the flood happening, the flood receding, or no flood. We have all these nilometers about, especially in temple settings, that track the Nile flood. And so they would, you know, because if you have too high of a flood, that's really bad. If you have too low of a flood, that's really bad. And so being able to see any indication early on, one or the other, or a good flood, um, right. you know, then you can plan accordingly you know if you know oh no it's going to be really low this year um that would set the tone i think for the whole year and then you know what can we do what stores do we have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. yeah the nilometer was hugely important it set the taxes for that mm-hmm. for that year for exactly. all of the elites and the sharecroppers and all of these different things um so you've got these seasons with four months each and each month has 30 days mm-hmm. so you get a year of 360 days and then what we have an extra five so-called epigominal days the mm-hmm. greek word these unlucky days lucky unlucky um but very important days um which are connected to five of the the main um gods of the ennead as i understand it and they're great feast days this is a part of the new year right mm-hmm. um and um and then as for leap year <laughs> Egyptians did not include a leap year. And so the civil calendar would be off, sometimes like completely on its head. The, the, the civil winter would be the actual 
um, summer or something like that. It would yeah. be completely on its head because they they didn't shift for the the um, the leap year, but they knew it was a problem. And so they also had the rising of the dog star Sirius, what the Egyptians called Sopdet, the sharp one. And she has, she has a feminine identity with the ancient Egyptians. And when that matched that heliacal rising of Sirius or Sopdet with the new year, then the civil calendar was on track. So, and and um, yeah. Sopdet often signaled when that rose in the sky in a certain area that meant the flood was about to come, so they could right. help line line things up in that way. Yeah, right. And when did that happen? Is that what happens in June? When am I? Where am I getting this June or July? So Sothic. So it's. Typically around the end of July. Okay, July. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then you get your flood August, September. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah. So I'm looking at a table of of heliac rising. Heliacal. Heliacal. Thank yeah, you. I, I was know. like, what is no that? No worries. Word? You would know yeah. it. <laughs> Heliacal risings of of Sirius. And it's always usually around the end of July, which then would signal the flood coming in August, September. So that makes sense. Okay. But yeah, so about winter solstice. So we, do we have any evidence for obviously not being connected in in a more European understanding of winter solstice being connected to winter holidays because that wasn't a, the Egyptian winter. But do we have any festivals or any significance linked to in solstices in general? They don't know. And I'm not a calendar mm-hmm. person. And I'm like trying to quickly look and, and think about this, but I don't. I don't want to give a poor answer, but we'll go back to the answer that you had originally as well, that we know that temples were built according to stellar, but particularly solar calendrical movements. And that for the temple of Karnak, you do get the sun rising directly between the two pylons with the, with the solstices. Mm-hmm. And it's really something to see. Um, you've seen it in person? I I so we were there last year actually um and but I'm like one I'm not going and standing in that crowd of people yeah, <laughs> yeah I refuse yeah. yeah um so I was there in Luxor but I just didn't go to Karnak right. to see it but the um, other thing yeah. I'm thinking of is that recent tomb at Kubar al Hawa that they found that also aligns with um the rays of the the solstice as well. I mean, obviously, I think we can make a connection with the Egyptians, the idea of the sun going into the underworld and every day being reborn. And so if we're thinking about tombs and the afterlife, the sun hitting your tomb on Mm -hmm. the um, marking the end of darkness of these days of darkness and returning of, um, you know, days with more sunlight. I, I think there's an obvious connection between rebirth and all these things and the heliacal rising of sirius i'm pretty sure does correspond with the summer solstice and that for the egyptians Mm -hmm. was like this miraculous moment so you get the beginning of the flood um during the hottest time of the year but it also really hits at home you know really hammers at home that the sun is what gives you life it's a, it's often a confusing thing for me because the sun it burns my skin it makes me sweaty and it and when it's really hot in Egypt when you're in Egypt in July oh my god the sun is this overpowering oppressive thing however 
in the ancient world, when you're really following the cycles of the Nile, which no one does anymore, we've damned it and, and really are slowly killing it. But when you follow the cycles of the Nile and you're living through those long days of summer, and the, the water is just running low and the sun is hot and you're like, oh my God, but on the longest day, if that's what's associated with the, the rising of Sirius, the beginning of the flood, you can understand that in the mindset of the humans who are embedded in that mm -hmm. landscape, they think of the power of the sun as having brought the waters. It's mm -hmm. what it's that cycle of the sun, not just the daily cycle, but the seasonal cycle and that solstice, the longest day of the year and Karnak Temple on the, you know, the east west axis it, it coming right through. That's what makes solstice um sorry, the, the serious rise and what makes the waters come. It's, a, it's like yeah. a, a power so strong that it pulls the waters. And, um, and of course, if you know your, your lore about the, the first time, the primeval pout, the, the, the beginnings of things, there, there's always a solar regenerative aspect connected to the Osirian seasonal aspect. So I just found that tomb that you mentioned at Kubit al-Hawa, the mm -hmm. tomb that's oriented to the winter solstice and the researcher saying that it's associated with the, this is a quote, the sunlight's victory over darkness. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't give a name in this article that I'm looking at for whoever said that, which is kind of crazy. But, um, but it's, it's, it's really awesome that you have the West Bank, the land of the dead, and then you have this tomb that is associated with the winter solstice that we all know what hour six and seven of the Amduat or the Book of Gates means, mean that there are these, these um, places where the sun is at its weakest point, but it's at that moment that it can meld with Osiris in a seasonal way and then give off the first glimmers of light again. So that you need the, this, the solar daily cycle is, is actually completely keyed in to the yeah. seasonal Osirian cycle and more work. So much more work needs to be done with this from the Egyptological perspective. And we need to stop being afraid of the John Anthony Wests out there and start to embrace this idea that the Egyptians were embedded within a solar, stellar, lunar landscape, and that we need to try to find that magic ourselves and see how each temple was was put into a, a space that that situated them seasonally um, and over a longer durée of time as well. These were these were clever astrologers and astronomers and 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 solar watchers who um who had who had really interesting ideas about their their world they didn't try to make them into a rational science they they had a different way of doing it but that doesn't mean that we egyptologists should avoid lest we be called pseudoscientists yeah this kind of work of looking at where the sun hits on a particular day where the moon hits on a particular day well, they would have I mean, that's humans. What we're good at is seeing coincidences yeah. and patterns and things like this. And so mm -hmm. they would have realized these things and made connections to them. And and obviously the rising of Sirius is, you know, happens at the same time every year. The flood in a traditional sense happens at the same time every year. So being able to make those two as like, oh, when this rises, the next month, the flood's coming. I mean, that's a beautiful observation of a natural phenomenon and making those connections. and. Yeah, I think we're so divorced from nature now. Um, so Karnak is associated with the winter solstice, mm -hmm. not the summer solstice. Summer mm -hmm. solstice associated with Sirius and Karnak. What's up? Uh, what I about mean, um, Abu Simbel? 
When does um, I don't think it's a hit? solstice thing, and I don't know what those days are meant to be, and I don't think anybody else really knows. And since they've moved it, and it's not in its original yeah, location, but I think they per, they retained they did, the angle. Yeah, but they still moved it, so I you know I don't know how much if they if they're able to they retained it so it goes oh, so the apparently same days. sunlight hits the back chamber on February twenty second which they claim is the date of Ramsay's ascension to the throne. And then also on his birthday, which I don't know how they know his birthday, on we, October we 22nd. Don't, I don't think we really know. So it hits, things, so it hits you know. twice a year in October yeah. and February. Yeah. Um, so not, not linked to any solstice. Right. But again, yeah. I, I really think this goes back to latitudes and what cultures give more prevalence depending on, you know, how much... Because in Egypt, when you're the closer you are to the equator, the less there is a change in the amount of sunlight you're really getting. Yeah, but if it's connected to the river and mm-hmm. the waters and the rising yeah. of Sirius, then it's going to be dating. your lifeblood. Yeah, mm-hmm. then it's your lifeblood. And then it makes sense that where do you have your nilometers to in measure temple. the waters, but in a temple space? And mm-hmm. where do you have your winter solstice? Um, when everyone's most worried about the the waters, it's there in that temple space mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, there's so much more you could say about this. What I would advise is to find uh, a copy of Gardner's Egyptian Grammar, and he has a really nice section in there on the calendar, mm-hmm. and um, go through that. And that's that's a really nice primer, and you should be able to find a Gardner's Egyptian Grammar online for free. Oh yeah, I think can't you? Yeah, yeah. you can oh, find yeah. a PDF. Yeah, out of copyright. So copyright. yeah, so. Yeah, look for that. And um, you can go, there are people, I think there's even substacks and blogs out there where people post every day, this is this Egyptian day. Because once Uh you get into Greco-Roman time periods, you can get very specific uh, and pedantic with your calendar calendric. So, so, and I I subscribed to one for a while and then I was like, I don't have time for this. But it's awesome to know what, you know, what day, what Egyptian day of the year it is. So I would, I would consider that with the students for when I was teaching Egyptian religion, I would, every time we had discussion section, I would tell them if it was a good or a bad day. So there's, um, and they just enjoyed it because they were like, oh, okay, like, you know, it's going to be a bad day. Like, don't, you know, (laughs) beware. Or you can look up like your birthday. Amber, you did this with Eric, right? He was born on a very bad day or something like that. Jeff was also born on a very bad day. It's like Jeff would get like, (laughs) it was like, beware of snakes, like you will die or something. And I was like, oh, (laughs) which makes sense because he's very unlucky. So. Oh, my God. Okay, good. Thanks, Abigail, for a great question. Yeah. um, When we post this episode, I'll pull some sources um, to post with the Substack as as well. So you can have, um, do you want to do some reading? Okay. Um, Noir88 asks, how does it work with the elites when it comes to transferring of riches and land ownership after, say, the husband dies? Does it go to his wife, to his eldest child, male, you know, eldest son, daughter? How does one take care of the funeral? So all this stuff. So wills. How do we know what's going on, um, say, when an elite man dies? What's the protocol? Right. So this is... um... Not completely easy, but there are wills preserved in papyrus form. So you can talk about them. The one I know of is the will of Naunacht from Daryl Medina, which is a will of an older woman who had property of her own. 
uh, a widow, if I remember correctly, who seems to have inherited property from her husband and how she refused to hand it down to actual relatives of hers and decided which ones she wanted to give them to. But this will of Nahunakt makes it very clear that she was deciding which relatives she wanted to pass down her goods and property to. And, and that right there, number one, that it's a woman who's able to do that is very instructive about how Egyptian women were very much a part of the economy and, mm-hmm. and passing down property and valuables to the next generation. It wasn't just strictly patriarchal. Women were completely um, discounted, not, not in Egypt. And that there's, there's not rules. There's, Egypt is a very strange place. It's not like the lands of the Bible, Syria, Palestine, where you have Leviticus and Deuteronomy with very careful laws about how things should work, or ancient Babylonia with Hammurabi's law code in Mesopotamia, how things should be passed out, how things should work. Egypt doesn't have a law code. It never had a law code. It seems to be a more, have been a more ad hoc, um, organically run society where, where people could decide on their own how they wanted to do things. That being said, it's still a patriarchy. It's <laughs> every complex civilization is a patriarchy. And whether you're following matriarchal lineage, does it matter? It's going to be the men in the society who are going to be hoarding, controlling, and monopolizing most of the goods and valuables, property, whatever. Um, so women could get involved um, if they lived long enough through childbirth after childbirth. Um, if they became a widow or something like that, they, this is why widows are associated with witches and are so freaking scary to patriarchal societies because they have so much fucking power. They, they, they're there as free agents in a society that systematically excludes women. And, and there they are having inherited all kinds of things. And, and people find that very problematic. I don't think Egypt fits into that as much as other places. Um, that's an interesting research topic. Someone get going on that. I, I love that idea of the witch in Egypt, why you don't see it in the same way as you might see it in other places. Instead, you get this uh, positive view of the sorcerer, sorceress instead. Um, that's a different topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so boys and men are generally going to get most of the goods, according to what we can see in in the handing down of property before the Greco-Roman period. And then it gets worse once you get a Greek occupation mm-hmm. and you get the introduction of Greek and Roman cultural ways, it becomes more patriarchal and you have less inclusion of women and more legal strictures brought in. But the North African Egyptian way of doing things is not as systematic as, as you might expect. Um, women were able to inherit. They were able mm-hmm. to bring those inheritances into their marriages. They were able to divorce and pull those properties out of that mm-hmm. marriage. And if I'm going to just give a gut check, like how much did women get in a particular family? I'm going to go with like 15 to 20%. And then I mean, yeah, the, the boys and men get the rest, but that's a gut check. I, and how would you prove that? And what, how would I'd have to look at the dissertation on wills and testaments and see what one could do. But mm-hmm. what, what have you got? I think oftentimes the word that gets translated as well is these immediate pair documents, which I think are more appropriately thought as like transfer documents, because sometimes mm-hmm. they happen while someone's alive. It's not necessarily always like a will, like how we think of them. 
Um, what I think is most fascinating about them is that we have a lot written by women. So this is one of our pieces of evidence to, to talk about the rights that women had in ancient Egypt. So we see them transferring property, transferring ownership of things to their kids to or disowning their kids in the case of Nawanakht, where we see she's like, you didn't take care of me. I'm disowning you and you don't get any. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is the choice. She is the choice. But she writes it down. She has to write it down. She that that thing exists probably because she couldn't just stand there. Yeah. Yes. And say, I want this. I want this. I want this. She's like, I got to yep. down because they're going to come at me. So she she documents mm-hmm. it in this way. Yeah, or that was on my exam for grad school. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I, I, I pulled up an example. So you can actually you can find Imiat pair like documents all the way back to the Old Kingdom. But I think they, um, you and, know, and Jordan, what does Yemit pair mean? The one who is over the house, I would say that that which that is which in is the in the house, yeah, that which is of the house, the yeah, possessions, so it's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, here is you know an imiat pair which the wa priest and overseer of the file wa made, and so it says imiat pair which the trusted person made, blah blah blah. His titles, all my property in country and town belong to my brother the Wa priest and overseer of the file stopped it. So in this case, he's giving all his stuff to his brother. All my dependents belong to this brother of mine. This was placed in the record office, blah, 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 blah. And of this, what's the date of this? Um, this is uh, Middle Kingdom. It's from okay. Cahoon. Um, and then it also goes on to say, I'm making in a pair for my wife, a woman of the town named Sat Sapatu. Um, consisting of everything which my brother gave to me. So he's saying, you know, the stuff that I got from my other brother, I'm now giving that stuff to my wife. I'm giving her the three um, Asiatic slaves. I'm giving her, yeah, you know, the house, the some of the land. And, and then here's the list of people who were in the presence when this was written. So they also need witnesses to mm-hmm. you know, account for it. So we have these documents that record the parceling up of things to giving of things but i agree with you that i think it's like if a husband if a male dies and the wife's still living i think it usually kind of goes to the wife and then but things are set aside for the kids that maybe mm-hmm. they would get at the death of then their mother or something like this which i i feel like is similar to a lot of um situations today but yeah so i mean presumably you could argue that People are writing these wills because they're going against the normal order of things and they need to then record them. So maybe in this case, giving his stuff to his brother is kind of weird. And so he needs to write it down, record it. And um, if you died without a will, I don't know how it would it just go to your oldest son or how it would work or to your wife. Um, these things we don't know about. But then um, to Noir 88's other question, how does the funerary aspects take place when someone's dead like do they set aside amount of money for my funeral who takes care of the funeral how does the funeral um you know the priests that are going into the tomb leaving offerings in perpetuity how do these work out so this is the most interesting part of the question and let me hit it in just a bit so first i want to say that for wills and testaments for ancient Egypt, I would say that this is going to hit probably 10 to 15% of society. And that yeah. most of society yeah. in ancient Egypt is going to be sharecropping as a peasant on somebody else's land they don't own on homes that they built but get flooded every year and that aren't necessarily theirs. And they have like their two outfits, their sandals, their comb, and their tools that may or may not belong to them. And that's like it. And they eat and they 
have sex and they have children and they have lives, but they don't, they don't get a lot of property. And this isn't, this isn't something that most ancient Egyptians are really a part of. And it's the Mm -hmm. same. So then let's connect that to the funerary sphere. I think that's really interesting in a Marxist sense, right? Like who gets to have a burial and who doesn't? The burial is a huge part of this. And while I say there's no law code in ancient Egypt, there in Dira Medina texts preserve this so-called law of the Pharaoh and this, this hepu per a'a. And it is, it, it, it is essentially the one who buries inherits. If you bury the person, you inherit from that person. If you're a poor peasant, it doesn't matter that you put them into the ground because you're not creating a coffin. You're putting them in the fetal position directly into the earth ostensibly. And you're giving them like their comb or their outfit or whatever it is. But there's not much property that goes with this. If you are an elite or a sub-elite, you have some sort of disposable income or property you can pass down, then the funeral is the witnessing moment of passing down power from one generation to another such that the one who buries, who pays for the funeral, who who invests in this moment is the one who inherits. And I've talked about this extensively in my forthcoming book, which you know, Jordan, of course, Recycling for Death, where I talk about how the 20th and 21st dynasty high priests of Amun, who are systematically looting and recycling, looting is the wrong word, recycling and recommodifying the tombs of the new kingdom ancestor kings. They are simultaneously repackaging, re-ocerifying, and recoffining those kings in a semi-public fashion to other high priests such that they can say, we are burying, we inherit. We, we understand these kings died a whole long time before us. There's tomb robbery going on like crazy in the Valley of the Kings. So we are burying them in beautiful gilded coffins. And you can see the coffin of Thomas the Third was though it was stripped of sheet gold, was gilded with foil by these high priests, when that, and that was removed later. But they're reburying and saying, we now inherit, what do they inherit? They inherit the rule of Thebes. They inherit the rule of the land. They inherit the temples. They inherit the stuff in the Valley of the Kings. They get it all. So the, the caretaking of the ancestor king and the re-coffining of those kings is essential to showing that they have a claim on the power and the stuff that has been passed down. And if that's the way it works in a grand scheme of rule over great cities and great spaces, it's also the way it works in microcosm that you, you bury the, your elder and then everyone witnesses this and they're like, okay, you get the shit. You, you get the land, you get this house, you get this garden plot, you get all this linen and whatever else it is that you have as disposable yeah. or movable income. And and this is, and here's my final point, and I want to hear what you have to say. But like, it's the coolest thing that humans do when they don't want to talk about money. Talking about money is crass, named after Crassus, a Roman dude who had too much money, right? Mm-hmm. An up and coming new mm-hmm. money kind of guy. But when people don't want to talk about money because it's crass and problematic, they veil it with ritual, mm-hmm. ideology, religion. And what better that way than a funeral when one generation is gone and another generation is coming in to claim stuff, which is so 
like icky and problematic. And, oh, you just, we have so many sayings about people coming in as vultures before they're even yes. dead, right? Yep. They just want the things and that they don't really love them and all of this. So the Egyptians have dealt with this problematic patriarchal thing this that results from monopolizing and hoarding goods by saying, okay, let's package it in a ritual so that everyone's crying over the dead and you're mourning and you're grabbing the legs of the your husband who's just died. But by doing that ritual funeral correctly, um, paying for it and mm-hmm. showing that you really care with your money and your outlay of cash, you get the stuff. So it's it's an economic transfer that is obfuscated and veiled by religion and ritual. And Egyptian like filial duty. Yeah. Right? Because usually like yes. presumably you're being, oh, yes. you know, the child. Talk about and that. that. Yeah. And that there's a, a sense of filial duty that if you're a good son, you will bury your parents and take care of their tomb and go and give them offerings and not forget about them and all these things. And that a, a bad child would be ones who don't fulfill these duties. And so the way to also, as you're, as I totally agree with you, as to go around talking about money and things that are like maybe like not as, you know, decorum and all these things is to couch it as duty and responsibility and filial piety. You maybe want to inherit your parents' goods and all these things, but also a sense that you you should do it because that's what's expected of you. The rest of the town might judge you if you don't put on a proper funeral and um, do your duties as as a kid, even if maybe you had issues with your parents and um whatever. And and there's often a priest who's standing in as that. It's either the son, mm-hmm. uh, and this year we do get patriarchal, and you can see the patriarchal succession. When when the parents die, the son is supposed to be clad as the, the priest in mm-hmm. the leopard skin, standing there doing the sensing with incense and offering that to their nostrils to awaken them mm-hmm. and awaken their mummies into the next world and to give offerings of food and drink. But he's there to transfer the to to ritually do the the transfer correctly mm-hmm. in the eyes of God with all the witnesses there. But he's he's there in a priestly capacity as well. And it's really interesting to see that sometimes it's the son actually standing in to do this. And you see this in royal tombs like Tutankhamun's tomb. You have um, you have images of kings wearing this leopard um, garment to show they show the transfer of this of this power. Um, but, but in later times it becomes professionalized. The priest is the one who's mm-hmm. wearing this. So it's, it's not then the, the son who's, who's the caretaker, but, um, but so there, right. You get an idea that the Egyptians are not formally writing it into a law. It's no law code that the eldest son gets the stuff, but they have ritualized it that the eldest son or the, the son who's left or whatever, the, the most important son is the one that wears this leopard skin. And does the ritual activity at the funeral unless he's the one who gets it. So it, it, they're just going to explain it to you in a different way, mm-hmm. right? If you if you go to another country and you're like, wow, Americans are very direct. But when I go to Egypt, they don't give me a direct answer. They talk around it and around it. And it's just a different cultural way of communication and expression in modern day Egypt compared to modern day America. But if we went to ancient Egypt and we asked, well, how do you pass down your, your money and your cash? People might be like, what? What are you even mm-hmm. talking about? We don't know what that means. But, you know, we have a funeral tomorrow. And, oh, yes, that's the son. And, and yes, you know, he's doing the ritual. And he is now the caretaker of the family. Yeah. And they don't talk about money or wealth at all. But it's there ritually 
documented and mm-hmm. and uh, displayed for everyone to see. So I like that to see it in that way that the Egyptians so often veil economic activities through ritual mm-hmm. actions. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, there's so much more one could say. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, and and really, that's a dissertation on it to be written, in my opinion, or a book or something. Mm-hmm. And I know that we've collected Yumi pairs, that which is in the house documents. I know we've collected wills, but to connect the economy with the religion in a in a more nuanced way, I think would be really, and to watch that diachronically change mm-hmm. through time, I think would be really mm-hmm. cool. If it exists, if it exists, someone please email me. I can't keep up with all the latest literature and the hundreds of dissertations being written in this Egyptological field every year. So do let us know. Mm-hmm. Okay, next question. We have Mike asking, so what do you think is the best way to communicate ancient Egypt to people outside the community? Communicating ancient history with people is something I've been personally researching, and I'd just be curious to know your thoughts on what you think brings the general public in most. What have you found to be the most inviting for people? And so I think this goes back to what we were just talking about at the very beginning of this episode. Um, Obviously, we believe in podcasts and other um, forms of media that are more accessible and less gatekeepy than like a journal that no one subscribes to unless you're in an academic setting and writing Mm in very obtuse language and um, or even just like teaching classes that you have to be a paying student tuition to to Mm -hmm. access, right? Um, No one can take your classes without being a UCLA student or a UC student. Um, A normal person doesn't get to learn about um, what you're teaching, right? Um, They have to pay to play. So in our case, right, we're doing podcasts, we're writing on the Substack. And so I think choosing accessible forms of media is a great way to do it. And then as for topics, I mean, what always pulled me in as a youth when I was interested, it was things that I felt I could relate to, like everyday mundane you know, what were ancient people eating? Because I too eat food and I'm interested just to um, see that connection through space and time in like a totally different place. And I think we also talked a lot about at Global Antiquity is is, um, drawing people in through what connects us as as humans. Yeah, I was, obviously we were thinking about this at this Global Antiquity workshop and I had some thoughts to share with the audience in one panel, and I can talk about some of those things here. Um, but I think you start with the human connection. And I had, after I gave my talk, and I'll, I can share some of those ideas in a moment, I was approached by a Romanist who was like, because I had said in my talk, oh, I try to bring me, like you just said, I try to make the Egyptians whom we have fetishized to such an extent othered and and made all full of magical magic and mystery and and taken their humanity away their emotions away i tried to in my work um pull them back into a human sphere sphere of empathy emotion and rationality irrationality just normal human reactions and that's what i try to do in my popular books um i think the woman who would be king encapsulates that mindset best um I, I didn't mention that last book section when I was talking to this audience because they don't like the fact that I write popular books at the in the academy, but um, they, for the most part. Um, but this Romanist was like, "Yeah, but why are you why are you doing it that way? Why are you humanizing? Because when I work with Rome, I'm trying to 
it communicated to students how very different ancient people were, how different their lives were, how short life expectancy was, how magical everything seemed, how there were omens everywhere. And I'm like, oh, no, no. I, so we're both trying to do the same thing. But because Rome is seen as gladiator and blood and gore and like almost too close to us, he has to, he has to fetishize, not fetishize them, but he has to make them magical and mysterious and make them more, he has to separate us. He has to other and you have to de-other. But yeah. so it's, it's contextually because yeah. Egypt, from a Western European perspective, Rome, we are the inheritors of Rome. So it seems, it feels like more comfortable. And so they're trying to prove like, no, Rome wasn't just white people and this and that and like, oh, right. trying to diversify it and messy it up. Well, for Egypt, it's been so othered and orientalized. We're trying to, so it's like two different strategies, but eventually getting to the same point of like, it gets, we're just and messy it gets, people too. It gets to the same point because most of our history has been constructed through the white supremacist male patriarchal narrative gaze. And that's what we have been taught and trained with. That's what we learned. That's what so much history content in the media world is if you look at History Channel or Discovery Channel and who's out there searching for this lost clue, even mm -hmm. if it's a female protagonist, it's still this masculine hunt for the for the for the true answers. And you know, we will find this, and this team is competing against that team, and all of that bullshit that they do on the big three of History Discovery and that Geo on TV. Um, but we're, we're so so in short, the the shortest answer I can give to this question: What? How do you communicate in the public sphere? is I openly politicize everything. And I don't try to create a narrative that seems apolitical. I try to find relevance. And if you find relevance, you're looking at the history that we are writing and creating today, and I compare it to the history of thousands of years ago. Is it a one-on-one -on -one comparison? No. Will it always work? No. Um, am I creating some things? Well, all of history is a fucking construct. So yes, it's until we get our time machines and we can go back. And even then, I swear to God, duh, we will not be able to have a history that we agree upon because everyone will have a different agenda. So if history is political and the way to pull people in so that they care, particularly young people, is to talk about political topics that are of interest to them, then we, we, we walk a fine line between particularism and universalism. Those are really big, scary words. And all I mean is we walk a fine line between saying you can't compare Egypt. It's its own thing. It deserves to be studied on its own ground in its own way. And how dare you? That's one very academic perspective that we deal with every day. And universalism, which is we're all one and the Egyptians were just like us and the Romans were just like us and the systems are the same. And that's bullshit too. So you have to find a way that goes into those spaces in the middle so we can be like, well, what do we have in common with ancient people? How are they still alive around us? Why the fuck do we care? And devote our lives to these things and try to piece out what it was like for them. And why are people listening to this podcast? Like, why the fuck do they care and need to know about what happened in the ancient world? Why do we get in these knockdown drag out fights about how the pyramids were built or whether or not there were star sightings at a particular pyramid place? 
or why people, you know, believe in Anubis and like people get, they lose their shit over these things. And it happened thousands of years ago and we're constructing a history about it all around us. But the fact that people care so much, it's at that locus point that you must meet them, which means that you need to run to pseudoscience, quote unquote, rather than weaponize it. You need to talk about how people are interested in calendrics and, and solstices and stars. We need to do more stargazing. We need to be more interested in the, the hot and sexy stories of the ancient world, because that's, that's what people told around the campfires in, in ancient times. This is what brought people in as well. And we need, um, we need a little more openness to, um, well, you guys know that I'm, I'm teaching myself Hellenistic astrology and I'm trying to embed myself in that world. And this idea of science with a big S and you must be rational and how dare you even think about it. And, and you know that I've read both of your charts and I keep, and I'm like, oh, you have this transit coming up. And I, and, and I find it extraordinarily fun to embed myself in a world of magic rather than be rational about everything in this world. I think it helps me to understand the ancient people better. And I think that Egyptology, the younger practitioners especially, are indeed moving in this direction, but they can't openly talk about it in the academy. So we'll talk about it here. We'll talk about it in this podcast arena and our Substack arena, and we'll make things vibrantly and openly political and then see where that gets us. But otherwise, people are just going to run to the white supremacist horrors of Fontanakin and ancient aliens. And that's not helpful. So we, we, better, we better make this as human and sexy and emotional and interesting as, as we possibly can. Well said. The only thing I will add to that is I think we need to ask people what they want to know about the ancient world, right? That we yeah. get out of our little ivory tower in academia and decide what mm -hmm. they should know and what classes should be taught and things like yeah. this. And ask students, ask the public, what do you want to hear about? Which is why I love the Patreon, the supporter questions, because I'm like, tell us what you want us to talk about. Like, we're here to serve you and send us your questions and we'll answer them as best as we can. And so... What do the undergrads at UCLA want to learn about in the ancient world? The popularity of your women in power class in the ancient world, I think, speaks to that. They're interested in seeing where women had or not had power and learning about that. And when I taught my fashion in the ancient world, that was super popular, too, because they wanted to hear about, you know, everyone wears clothes. What's going on? Um, and so just asking people what they want to learn about and using our skill set with having this unique knowledge and making those connections and, and serving and educating. Yeah. We're just having, and have, my God, it must be joyful because what happens when you go to grad school, you, you, you start with this passion and joy for the ancient world. And you're like, I'm so excited about this. And then you move into this space of diminishing resources and sometimes open harassment and um, just a, a, a real boner killer of sadness that that takes your your passion for the ancient world and it turns it into a footnoted, defensive, protected reality of ego-driven mm -hmm. um, science with a capital S. And what the we're truth. doing is not science with a capital S. It doesn't exist. Um, talking about people and people imaginings of the past must be, you know, they can be imaginings and, and that's okay. Yeah. So Stories. I... I 
I think that moving things out of the academy helps my academic work become richer and better because I'm able to come in with beginner's mind. And as you say, when people ask us questions, I'm like, oh my God, Calendric, shit, what do I know? And why don't? And then I realize how I am not embedded in my earth world, that I've got electric lights. I can't see the stars in the city of Los Angeles. I have no idea where the Milky Way is. I can track the ecliptic because now I go outside and I'm like, okay, there's Jupiter and it's next to the moon right now. And, and, and I can, you know, I'm learning these things, but I can't make all the electric lights in Los Angeles go out with a massive blackout and <laughs> without a massive blackout. And, and do I want that? No, but we don't know what it means to have a river that rises and, and, and then dis- decreases. We don't know what it means to grow our own food, at least not most of us. And to be so disassociated from the matter whence we come, I think is hugely problematic. And who the fuck are we as academics to be like, this is the way ancient Egypt was. Unless we've lived in the place where the Nile was, was flooding its banks, we all have to get our stuff and move. And the rich people on the higher ground are like, ha ha, you suckers, go ahead and move over to the desert area. And you know, what's, what are the bathrooms like? And how do you bathe? And did everyone really have parasites all over? And did worms come out of people's tear ducts? I would love to know these things. You know, what was it like to wash your clothes? Mm-hmm. What was it like to give birth? What was it like when your, your third baby died mm-hmm. after, you know, another cholera-like epidemic? Um, what was it like to have power thrust upon you with the death of a family member? And all of a sudden you're there going, oh my God, I'm in charge of everything. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it. Um, what was it like when the Libyans were invading from the Western mountains? What was it like when the Sea Peoples came in and all of a sudden everyone had these weird ass names and yet they were integrated into society because this is the people are adaptable and this is the way it works. And I, I can't even start to imagine what it's like to be ancient Egyptian if I don't know what it's like to see the stars mm-hmm. and I don't know what it's like to to track the sun. How many of us track the, the sun? as it moves north to south and understand the movements of the sun in a seasonal capacity and know what the, we're like, oh, it's solstice. And then we change our clocks because mm-hmm. we have some weird patriarchal work more constructive daylight mm-hmm. savings time, which is the most absurd thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Only Americans do it. And thank God for that. And hopefully we'll stop. But like, do you know where the sun goes, how it moves along the horizon mm-hmm. when there's a solstice or not? And the, these are the kinds of things I'm realizing that, I'm completely divorced from and I need to yeah. connect more with, you know, like maybe I should start just turning off my Wi-Fi at night and and being a part of that world instead. And yeah. instead of just staring at my email and thinking I'm a bad person for not getting through it. Um, it's yep. but then every one of those emails is connected to a service within this patriarchal world of saving someone in this world of diminishing returns. So it's a hard choice to make. You know, there's there's selfishness to me, like running off to see the stars. Um, I got a girl boss. I got a girl boss. Got a girl boss. <laughs> got to look at the stars and answer your emails. <laughs> yeah. But yes. But yeah. Great, great um, question. Okay, we're totally pivoting on a totally different note. Matt. Okay. And Matt asks about um, clay coffins and wonders about how Egyptian are there funerary goods found in Gaza? So we're we're pivoting up um, to West Asia. So there's, so we'll give some background to this question in a second. But so how funerary or how Egyptian, quote unquote, are these clay coffins that are found outside of Egypt in the Levant? 
and specifically Gaza, they are the faces on these clay coffins identifiable as in the style of Egypt. We also have these clay coffins um, found within Egypt as well. And so how do we see that? Um, what insights into colonial power do we see? So Egypt ruling this region at the time. Why would dead Gazan elites appeal to Egyptian gods rather than their own gods? And so how do we see Egyptian empire at this time, colonial power? Um, and then why do we see these human humanoid clay coffins popping up um, outside of Egypt? Okay, give me two seconds to grab a book. Yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'll provide some preface um, to people with some background, and we'll post some images of these clay coffins as well. But essentially, as I'm sure you know, coffins typically are wooden. But we do have some examples of anthropoid, so human-shaped clay co- made of clay, which are crazy, but they could make such a large body container out of clay. Um, and they have these goofy... Thanks faces in a way. Okay, so the book that everyone should look at if you can get it, and I'm looking at Amazon right now, and you can only get, it's 50 bucks, you know, that's not the end of the world for an academic book. It's, it is in French. Um, it's Les Sarcophages en Tierre Cuite uh, by Laurence Cotel Michel. And um, so you can, you can look this up on Amazon, 50 bucks, and it is the most systematic and thorough collection of clay coffins from Egypt and the Levant. And there are hundreds of coffins in here. This is an extensive study that more people are, are involving themselves in. And it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, so to get to some of the the coffins, because Gaza was specifically mentioned, and I know that there are coffins found at Dero Balash, um, which is, uh, I, I have here, 14 kilometers southwest of Gaza. Um, yeah, there's a lot of Egyptian know, imperial yeah. sites um, within mm-hmm. what, is, what is now Gaza. Yeah, so Gaza is right there at the mm-hmm. entrance to the Levant, to Syria, Palestine, for the ancient Egyptian uh, hegemonic forces who wanted to go in and and uh, smash and grab or connect with the Levant. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of interacting with this part of the world. It's the crossroads between the Levantine world and the ancient Egyptian world. It's a place that I've never been for obvious political reasons. These are hard borders that are not easily crossed. And, but it's, you know, if, if you go to Southern Israel, you can get an idea of what this, this part of the world um, is like, but you have to do so from that border. Um, if you, um, our work, it's hard to get to the Sinai in Egypt mm-hmm. and, and to be a part of this, to, to embed yourself into this world. Um, so I don't know what kinds of archaeology is happening there now, but there's a lot of these coffins that have been pulled out of the ground at sites like Tel Yahudia, Dir al-Balakh. Tel Yahudia, I think, is in Egypt proper. It's Egypt, but yeah. Is, yeah, in the Eastern, Eastern Desert. Delta. Yeah. So Eastern you know, the, the Delta and the Eastern Delta is always going to be a little bit Levantine. It's always going to be a little bit of that world in the same way that, I don't know, like Minnesota is a little bit Canadian, right? And North <laughs> Dakota is a little bit Canadian. You're always going to, or, or go to, go to uh, Washington state. You're always going to have Vancouver is going to be a part of this world. So you're going to always have both places and people crossing borders and people live on one side and work on the other. This is a normal thing. It was mm-hmm. a normal thing in the ancient world. It's less normal now to have such hard borders and such um, 
polarized uh, polities. That's that's rather strange. In the ancient world, there was constant movement back and forth. And so if you have the Egyptian elite hegemony in the form of a military community of practice, scribal community of practice, a priestly community of practice, and all three of these existed and could intertwine, of course, um, in this part of the world. And they're hoarding wealth and, and resources, and you want to be a part of these things, then you will be attracted to their cultural ways. And you might even participate in hybridized understandings of death and burial, such that you take on Egyptian style burial practice. Maybe not all the way, maybe it's a hybrid, um, a, a complicated negotiation of different cultural styles. But the clay coffin is a wonderful negotiation between an Egyptian wooden coffin, an Egyptian body container, which the dead is laid out, not put in a flex position, but put in an extended position, such that it can be displayed and buried in front of a large audience. And wood is the scarcest thing in this part of the world. I don't know if anyone has been to the Sinai. <laughs> I have not. Um, or if you've been to Southern Israel, uh, Southern or if you've been to Gaza, um, there's, there's not many trees in these places at all. There's shrubs and um, there is vegetation, but there's, there's springs and things like that, but there's no trees. And in the absence of trees, and given that the Egyptian understanding of a coffin is meant to be like a sycamore goddess enclosing you, the, or the acacia tree that is, you know, the cool shade that is provided to you and you're inside of her body. In the absence of that tree-like form, how can you make one? How can you manufacture that kind of body container to then manufacture an elite social status and show people, oh my goodness, I have all of this wealth and power? You would use what's available to you. You have earth and you can transport charcoal charcoal probably made of wood, um, a light material that could be transferred and you use a kiln, you would take that earth, you need water. Water is a scarce resource too, but if you're near a spring or something, you can do it. And you're when you bury yourself in a tree, like say you're burying yourself in a log, like a Rishi coffin, you're like, look at this motherfuckers. I get the whole tree. I can't tell you what a throwdown of power that is. That tree that, that was so revered and got so big and was hundreds of years old, some rich dude cut it down, used the tree, made a log out of it and put his body inside of it and said, I deserve this. It's like a sacrifice. It's like a human sacrifice. It, it is a, a wound on the soul of the community from which it was taken. Now you're like, well, I don't get it. What does a clay coffin have to do with this? Well, to make clay pots, you're like, okay, I get to cook in it. I get to use it to carry wine. I get to use this pot for all kinds of utilitary things. To make a big, ginormous clay pot that you're going to put a dead body into, it takes a tremendous amount of fuel, skill, resources, transport, labor to make. And so you're, you're creating a social throwdown of power saying, look, look at what I've got. Look at the wealth I've been able to amass. I couldn't get a tree, but I use the kiln in the village, you know, where the spring is that can make these pots. And I created something with a face, with hands, with eyes. I am now magically activated. I have access 
to the power that we know the Egyptians have been able to wield over us as they come into the southern Levantine regions and and wreak havoc or take control or set up an administrative center or whatever it is that the Egyptians were doing at a particular place and time. Because these clay coffins have a very long durée. They extend from um, middle bronze, I think, into late bronze and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd have to look more yeah. carefully because it sounds yeah, roughly right. Yeah. And they track with Egyptian coffin styles. Mm-hmm. So you can track these clay coffins with Egyptian wooden coffins, and there are similarities. So there is an elite uh, language being spoken here, an elite visual language of communication. And it's it's really cool how people adapt. In the same way, I would say, with the late bronze, when wood becomes inaccessible because of tree stands, of vacation sycamore in the Delta being cut down or used for military tools, or they're, you know, it's just the world's on fire, so they don't have any wood they reuse coffins instead. So a reused coffin is a negotiation for elites who are like, we better do this ritual to get, we need to pass down the goods, to show everyone that we're still leaders of the village. Whatever it is, we have to do this ritual. We can't get a coffin. Oh my gods, what do we do? They'll get a coffin. They reuse a coffin of an ancestor. And the clay coffin is a similar kind of negotiation, but it still speaks to a tremendous outlay of resources to to create because it's not of any use whatsoever (laughs) in a a physical reality is conspicuous consumption par excellence in a part of the world that that it needs to protect its scarce resources so i don't know what what do you think jordan yeah i mean i i totally agree with you and i think just to summarize some of the debates or arguments by scholars about the interpretation of these coffins some people argue that they came out of Egyptians living in the Levant during these colonial um, imperial times and that, you know, they wanted to be buried in their Egyptian style, but yeah, they didn't have wood. So then they were like, okay, what's the next best option? And we're going to make these coffins down, but imitating using Egyptian kind of styles and backgrounds so making them anthropoid. Other people argue that they're local elites trying to get in with the larger Egyptian game and so are imitating Egyptian styles. Um, I don't see why it can't be both. Of Other course people... it's both. This is a word, world at a crossroads. Yeah. It's both. Try it's to, a negotiated yeah. style. Yeah. Um, but and then, of course, we get to the debate of like, where did they first occur? The origin of this practice? Like, do you find them first in Egypt? I think some of the earliest attestations we have are from Egyptian, modern Egyptian contexts. Um, but again, Archaeology in um, what are now Palestinian territories and southern Israel, you know, there hasn't been a lot of good archaeological excavations due to, you know, political um, things. And so I think making some argument based off origins is super tenuous. Um, And we know the burial practices in, in, in ceramics, pots and things like this. Yeah, happened both in Egypt and in the Levant. So mm-hmm. um, it's not weird to be using clay as a material for burial. Um, and so I, I think, more, as you said, more people are doing research into these and looking into these further. So I, I think more stay tuned because um, I think with further research, we'll be able to find, um, we'll be able to kind of know more of this interaction between the the 
the two entities. Yeah. I, and origins is always so problematic yeah. because, and or diffusion is so problematic. Yeah. You know, this style came from Egypt. It's Egyptian. So people they took it with on. Them. It's yeah. a hybrid. Is it, was it a local practice that then became Egyptianized? It's, and the answer is yes to all yes. of them. This is all of these things. And you could then say some of them appear more Egyptian style in their yeah. facial typologies and their headdresses and their mm-hmm. ear forms. Some some are quite hieroglyphic. Mm-hmm. Like some of the late period look like a late period stone sarcophagus yeah. with that hair face, the hieroglyphic yeah. face sign that that has the big ears and is looking right at you. And some of them look you know, like a Ramesid coffin with the the headdress done in a particular way, even with a striped headdress and things like that. And others have these weird big eyes and like Mr. Bill sort of lips. You guys probably don't mm-hmm. even know who Mr. Bill is from Saturday Night Live, but you can you can Google Mr. Bill and he's got these little round mouth. Um, but some of them look like that and look mm-hmm. like they have a more indigenous Levantine. What does indigenous even mean in this part of the world? But an Levantine style. A local face, style. Yeah. Local style. Yeah. And um, and so it's it's all of the above. And it, this discussion of clay coffins, as you intimated, Jordan, is a locus of great scholarly and political debate because it becomes a question of cultural origins, cultural appropriation, diffusion, who invented it? Why did they take it on? Were they insecure? They needed to be more Egyptian. Um in the end, what what I will say is that elites always like to have shared visual fashions and shared visual languages. They do this. They still do this. Yeah. So we could we could hang out in New York with if we were so lucky, could hang out in New York with some mega rich billionaire type people and then go to China and hang out with some mega rich billionaire people. And, you know, they'd probably be wearing similar things and yep. wearing similar watches and and because they know where the best of the best is for this jewelry or this outfit or this Have the same car. Or yeah. Yeah. And and elites like to do this in the ancient world, too. Mm-hmm. So you see even in early bronze, you'll see people elites with with similar iconography appearing, maybe in different media. But but they're speaking a visual language and they want to connect with each other in this way. And these clay coffins be, are it, it's easy to belittle them and make fun of them. To look at them and go, oh my God, look at these cute, silly faces. Seriously, we'll put in some clay coffins in the show notes and you'll be like, what the hell? They're so cute. Um, and some of them look rather naive and... and uh, Simplistic. Yeah. Sim- yeah, just less adapt- adept. And some you can tell are made by potters and they have handles on them. Mm-hmm. So you can lift off the, the lid. I mean, but the for these coffin. not to have exploded. I think yes. any of them surviving the firing process, even if they artistically... We don't consider them like, like attractive or something. I the fact that they survived the firing process means someone skilled made them. Oh no! They, so they so. they look they might look to you not as nice as a polychrome Egyptian wooden yeah. coffin. But the point is, these belong to very wealthy people mm-hmm. who are able to uh, afford the research and development to create a coffin like this to connect to a kiln maker or build a kiln that could fit giant mm-hmm. pieces like this, as you say, that did not explode. Um, they knew what they were doing. And this was a long durée fashion style of a group of more mobile people mm-hmm. who are moving back and forth between Egypt and and the Levant and maybe a merchant um, 
status group of, mm-hmm. of people. So don't, don't, um, discount them. These don't, are yeah, denigrate them yeah. as like a lesser yeah. option to like the coffin. Yeah. Um, I think they're just a, just different option. Yeah. Yeah. Different option. And people who, you know, you wonder if an Egyptian lived at, in the Northeastern Delta, did they choose the clay coffin because they wanted to associate with a different part of the world on purpose mm-hmm. or were well, they like, no, no, I want to go with wood. It's an interesting thing because the Delta, we don't have many coffins surviving from this place and necropolis because it's too wet. So maybe there are elites who are like, you know, what? I don't want to be, they would have seen this, this, mm-hmm. this lack of preservation, just the way we see it as archaeologists. Maybe they chose clay coffins because they, they lasted and they didn't break down and you had your body container for forever. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, that, that would make a lot of sense as well. Yeah, so I think um, exploring these ideas that it's not just, you know, that they're a lesser imitation object, I think I think we have to be a little bit more creative when looking at them. Um, and if you're interested in Egyptian imperialism in um, the Levant and Syria, we can suggest some readings for that as well. That's, there's, that's a huge topic and how and to what degree <laughs> Egyptians were imperial there. Kara doesn't. I we've I think we've talked about this before. Rather, you know, it's is it uh, an empire? Is it control? So people debate exactly the type of structures and systems at play. But well, I mean, just to touch on that because you you said it, so I'm just going to mention a couple of things that if you're interested in imperialism, you know, there's your Ellen Morris Mm -hmm. volume, really, really good that accepts imperialism as a concept and an imposition onto Levantine areas by Egyptian hegemony. And then there are people who are pushing back against some of these ideas, in particular, Federico Zangani. Mm-hmm. And, and I would look to his recent volume, which is taking the, the very idea of imperialism, of a pluralistic, expanding system. And, and he says, that's not what Egypt's doing. It's, it's an occupation. It's a, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a hege- hegemonic imposition. It's a different kind of thing. Uh-huh. And he starts with the 18th dynasty and then he just starts to, to um, yeah. dismantle the idea of imperialism. And Especially now we have to Nubia. Exactly. And like Nubia, what the Egyptians are doing yeah. in the South. Yeah. It's um, I would say that the 25th dynasty Kushites are more, are more imperialist than uh-huh. the Egyptians were to Nubia, even in the 18th and 19th dynasties, uh-huh. which is a controversial thing to say, but these are the kinds of things that Egyptologists are arguing about. And, I'm here for it. <laughs> I, I like the I like the conversation. It's interesting. So yeah, but yeah, I think the point being that people were moving back and forth a lot. Cultures were getting practices were being hybridized, changed mm-hmm. always. So yeah, I think we these coffins are are an output of that. Yeah, good question. Um, okay, well that's all that I have for uh, this month. And so thank you again, all of our supporters for sending in their questions. Keep sending them in and. We'll see you next time on After Lies of Ancient Egypt. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for your support. And please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends. And most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. 
You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. <laughs>